Today's show is sponsored by Mack Weldon. They make the most comfortable hoodies, sweatpants, underwear, and socks you'll ever wear. I'm wearing the socks right now because I paid for them with my own money. It is the best endorsement I can ever give you. Um, what else can I tell you about them? They look good. They smell good. I'm, Jessica, I'm not going to ask you to smell them. What do you think of the hue, though? Love the blue. It's color coordinated. It's is a deep blue. Deep? Is it turquoise? I don't know. I defer to your your color judgment here. They're easy to buy. You go to MacWeldon.com. You get 20% off your order with the promo code RECODE. If for some reason you don't like them, and you will, you will like them. You get to hang on to them. MacWeldon will send you your money back. That's how venture capital works, apparently. Go to MacWeldon.com. Use the promo code RECODE. You get 20% off. That's MacWeldon.com. Promo code RECODE. Jessica Lesson, you are not in the advertising business, so you do not have to read ads. How do you feel about that? I feel pretty great about it, although you did an excellent job. Thank you. I, I'd buy them. I appreciate it. This is Recode Media with Peter Kafka. That's me. I'm speaking with Jessica Lesson from the information. Normally, when I have a guest on, not normally, oftentimes when I have a guest on, I say, what do you do? Explain what your business is. There's this uncomfortable back and forth. They try to explain that they're not really a newsletter company. They're something else. Mm-hmm. You guys are really simple to explain. Can I take a crack Go at it? Go for it. You guys are a tech business publication, subscription-only business. Main business is $400 a year, and you've recently said you've got 10,000 subscribers. More than 10,000. More than 10,000 subscribers. Um, what did I miss? I think that's it. I that's mean, the end of the interview. We're that, done. We're done. Uh, we solved the riddle. We're, you know, three years in, I think, publishing some really great in-depth journalism about I the concur. tech industry. I concur. You guys are doing great. And um, the kind of things I'm really excited about right now, we actually have the second largest tech reporting team in Silicon Valley, which people don't realize. If you look at... The number of unique reporters we have covering unique technology, reporters? or number of reporters, I like unique reporters. Unique reporters. I, I'm so people techie. who publish once. A I month. know. Well, if you think that I, that that's obviously a unique visitor slip over <laughs> from my days as a tech reporter. But on the ground, um, second only to Bloomberg, so we you got have a couple dozen people. I think all in. Uh, yeah, a couple dozen all in. Uh, Thirteen full time reporters, and why that's important, right, is because we are doing original journalism, and that's what we're excited about, what's driven our business, and what we think is an awesome business for the future. So you're three years into this. Prior to that, you had a long, impressive run at the Wall Street Journal. And prior to that, you were in college. That's correct. So you, you shot right out of school and said, I know what I want to do. I want to do technology journalism. And then you said, I want to start my own technology journalism company. Boom. That Successful was it. twice in a row. And, um, you know, I was lucky. I joined the journal at a time when technology was this new, fancy, shiny object that a publication like the Wall Street Journal was still figuring out how to cover. So there was a lot of opportunity uh, to be the first to important things like online video. You know, I remember interviewing Zay Frank when he was a vlogger. Yeah. That, you know, is a term we use. So uh, I really enjoyed the chance to um, cover the industry at a place that wasn't paying a ton of attention but was paying more over time. And then actually began to cover the ways that these tech companies I was writing about were changing my industry, uh, and so came up with the idea for the information. So you've got more than 10,000 subscribers paying $400 a year. You introduced a, a, like a student rate, mm-hmm. and there's a super high premium rate for yep. ten grand. but I assume most of them are paying $400 a year. Uh, yeah, that's our focus. What do your readers want to read about besides awesome technology journalism? What drives, what flips the, what's the metaphor? Tips the scale. Tips the scale, something with a needle. Sure. It's Monday All of the above. What are people most interested in reading? So it's many different kinds of stories, which I think is important because there's a sense that people will only pay for scoops or people will only pay for something they can trade off of. Uh, And it's not true. Uh, We find in terms of whether it's an in-depth look at how Magic Leap has been showing investors prototypes that aren't really what they're saying um, or what's happening to Tony Fidel at Nest, or it's a thoughtful analysis um, that is pure commentary uh, or anything in between. If it isn't already out there, it drives a lot of business. We were just talking before you came up about what podcast episodes are doing well Mm -hmm. for us. and Anything with Apple in the title, obviously. And then Uber, Amazon, Trump, all things that make sense if you've ever looked at web traffic. Because you guys aren't interested in web traffic, I'm sure you are, but uh, you're not dependent on it for your revenue. Do you think that your readers are fundamentally interested in different kinds of stories than they would if they were going to a free site? I don't, but I think there's a breadth of interest out there that – the free sites aren't serving that we're serving. So here's an example. I mean, yes, Uber, Apple, big news about big tech companies is important. We do that. 
But we're also interested in how technology is changing other industries. I think that the industry has become too – our coverage is too tech-obsessed and not enough what I like to think of as tech-centric, as in seeing the world of business through technology. So writing about – you know, even some auto suppliers who might be for sale in the self-driving car kind of movement or key players like Velodyne in that industry with LIDAR. You know, those are stories that are very big stories for us that, you know, may not see surge in certain types of traffic, but our subscribers recognize they're at that intersection of where tech is disrupting their business. Because you still fundamentally have an audience to please, right? Just mm-hmm. like any HBO is a subscription business, but they still want to make sure that people are watching their shows. And if no one's watching a show with Jack Black in it, which I can't remember, they will not renew that show. Netflix the same way, right? There's still a metric Engagement, right? And, and I think that's why, and it's great you mentioned HBO. I, to me, they're a model brand in this new media zone that we're in because – they are a brand. They are something that people want to identify with, that you don't just wait and see what shows up in Twitter. You actually go to the programming actively. And I think all publishers need to start thinking more like brands. And so as a subscription business, that is very natural for what we have to do because we have to be engaging enough that people want to keep paying us. You're three years into this. What what has surprised you about running your own business for the first time, about running this kind of business? I think what surprised me is um, how much time I spend on recruiting and growing our team. And as an entrepreneur, or as a reporter, when I asked entrepreneurs what surprised them or what they spent the most time on, they said that. I thought they were dodging my questions about their big scoop they didn't want to tell me about or something. Um, but it's true. Because bringing people in, getting them to come in, getting them to stay, replacing them when they leave. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And and I think that for, um, you know, no matter what you do when you're building a business, it's it's about the people. And, and even more so for our business where our product is our journalism, which is totally driven by our reporters. So I think, um, you know, we've been really, really fortunate in – hired some amazing reporters. And I think because of what's happening in the rest of the industry, there's a lot of opportunity. We're getting a lot more inbound lately, but it's time consuming. I think a lot of the work that I do and, and other reporters do and the work that you used to do as a reporter is is sometimes it's collaborative and often you're working with an editor, but really you're off working on your own quite a lot. And now you're running a company, you're managing people, you've got a couple dozen people. Everyone who runs something for the first time has to feel their way through it, um, but they also go out and look for help. Have you gone to people in the industry and said, can you help me out? Can I get advice from you? Absolutely. Who, and who as a reporter, on? it's my second nature to ask questions. Yeah. <laughs> That's the only thing I – how I run a business. So across the board, uh, entrepreneurs are a huge source of wisdom and um, – it's awesome. Many of them are subscribers, and so that we get double-edged feedback there. Uh, we have an advisory group at the information, just informal group of advisors uh, like Paul Steiger, former editor of the Wall Street Journal, uh, Jim Vandehey, now the founder of Axios, uh, John Doerr of Kleiner Perkins. So uh, those people are great when I have some targeted issue I really want to put a are lot there, of brains Are there against. other management aphorisms like that? Like the like the, oh, recruiting is really my number one yeah. uh, time suck um, that you would have brushed off as a reporter and now find newly relevant? That's the one that comes back again and again. Um, oh, culture. <laughs> so culture was another thing. And you're, you know, the, the reporter, as a reporter, my eyes would sort of glaze over you're when an, an entrepreneur would would talk about that. Um, but, it, you know, it actually ties into the recruiting point. And, you know, not culture as in, like, what kind of snacks do you have? But I, someone once told me, I forget who it was, that the culture is really, like, why everyone at your company is doing what they're doing. Um, and that, I think, can be critical, and both in recruiting and, and also bringing clarity to prioritizing um, what the business is going to do and go after. So it's one I'm a little less skeptical of these days. I, I see you out there proselytizing. You do op-eds, you do speaking engagements, you've come to our events, you're doing this. Oftentimes when I see someone who's running a business out there, I say, oh, well, they're assuming that it's not just ego, that they're doing it because they want to generate ad business, they're looking for investment. You're self-funded, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. 
just no advertising business. No advertising. Um, so why is it important for you out there to go out there and bang the drum on behalf of your business? And and, and more than that, I mean, you're off, often out talking about the ad model and why the ad model is screwed and why the pay business is, is the way you to go. You call me outspoken, Mr. Kaufman. Uh, yes. <laughs> Don't but take what's, it. No. What's the point of saying that? <laughs> Obviously, you're outspoken. Um, that's why you're here. What's the point of, of having a public persona? Sure. Look, I, I think we're at a really important moment in the news business. Um, and you can just like the news has become the news. So this is not an original idea. Everyone is talking about this, but we have a dearth of original reporting uh, and it's going to affect our society and is affecting our society. And there's this belief that news is a bad business. And I don't believe that. And I think it's really critical that others feel the same way and invest in building new businesses, old businesses that can continue to serve this mission of being great journalistic enterprises and being great businesses because of their journalism, not having to tack on a multi-million dollar events business or get into not you know, there's consulting. anything wrong with that. Your words, not mine. But I, I think the point is we've seen an era where the assumption is news is a bad business. It's all going the way of you know, sort of a race to the bottom. Talent is fleeing the industry. And I, my perspective is totally different. I think it's never been a better time to be in the news business. But my question is why... Oh, we'll so go, why do I do why, it? Why do you, well, I'll go back to the theory in a bit, but why is it important for you to be out there writing op-eds? Sure. There's people who make a living, you know, doing the chin stroking, and I guess this is a version of that on, on this podcast, talking about the future of news. But you've got a business to run. You've got mm-hmm. people to recruit. Sure. What's the point of, of going out and... and and banging the drum for for your message? Look, I I just personally think it's important, and it's part of what excites me about this opportunity. I think I want to reach the kind of people who want to work at the information um, because I think it's important to get that message out that we commit. commit, Absolutely. And um, on a relative basis, don't feel like I spend that much time doing it. Most of my days are, are, uh, are in the office and in the newsroom, but... It's also a chance, you know, I still write and report, and it is a chance to meet other interesting people and develop story ideas as well. On the, the paid model and the death of news, right, I don't think there's any debate that you can sell certain kinds of news to certain kinds of audience. Clearly, the Wall Street Journal, where you worked before this, has been able to do that for a long time. Clearly, there's an audience for investors and other people in technology to pay for a premium for a certain kind of news. It seems like, and that model has existed for a long time for other newsletters, other trades. It seems like where the question is, is how does this work for general news, sure. local news, um, lots of stuff that has either been traditionally fully ad-supported or had some other sort of subsidy that has now been erased by the internet. doesn't seem like this model will work in local news, for instance. Nothing works in local news right now. So the way I see it is people will pay for things that are valuable to them. We pay to go to the movies. We don't expect to go to the movies for free. We pay for items of clothing we like, right? News is information. And I think if it's valuable to an audience, there's a price that people should be willing to pay. And as an industry, that should be our default assumption, whether we're in local news or business news, that we want to create something that will have some value to someone. And that hasn't been how people approach the industry, we treat news as some separate thing that's sort of free until otherwise proven it should be paid. And I just think that we have been approaching it backwards and that if a local what is news- What is the right approach if I'm in Tawanda, Pennsylvania or Stillwater, Minnesota or other small towns that I could think of off the top of my head? What should I pay as a consumer or, or how should I get my news if I want to get news about my community? So I would look at it from the point of view of the people covering those markets – should be asking themselves, what can we do that is so valuable that someone maybe will pay five bucks a month or maybe less? You know, I don't think we're talking about $400 a year. But in the same way that people obviously in those markets do pay for some sources of information, I think if outlets approached it from that mentality, they would be raising the bar in what they publish. Now, some of them may still end up in a place where they're primarily ad-supported, and that was probably true. But again, if, if someone's willingness to pay is just saying this is important to me, 
Those there are people in those markets who are paying for Netflix. They're paying for Spotify. Right. I mean, I mean, I mean, I mean, what you you may end up with, right, is you may end up with, and that we're headed there, is you end up with a very small community of people who are informed because it's important to them, and or they can afford it to pay for that, and a lot of other people who probably should know what's going on and don't. I just had Lydia Polgreen in here mm-hmm. talking about the difference between the Huffington Post and New York Times. New York Times has a big audience and an affluent audience, and they can pay fifteen, twenty bucks a month. And she thinks that's great, but she thinks there's a bigger, broader audience that should be served by a free publication. And again, I think nationally that solves. I think it's really broken in mid mid-sized markets and smaller markets. Look, I think in those markets, it would make sense to experiment with blended models. You know, there are metered paywalls. Yep. There are all sorts of things. And and just because as a publisher you say, I want to charge something for my content, it doesn't mean you're attacking society or against the freedom of information. Quite the contrary. It says, you know, I'm going to support myself by doing good work that has value. And it does spread and reach other people and inform I just think there's a giant gap between the number of people who would pay a lot of money for that Magic Leap story that mm-hmm. you wrote, right? It was a very important story for a small number of people but mm-hmm. with deep pockets. And someone who needs to know what's going on with city council or zoning board yeah. or wherever. And there's a long gap between $400 a year and other kinds of paid models, right? And as an industry, I just hope we see more experimentation in paid models throughout the chain. So we make money, some money, through advertising here. So we're going to hear from our fine sponsors. We'll be right back. Today's show is brought to you by Willis Towers Watson. Cybersecurity is one of the greatest threats any business faces. Last year, more than 400 million new malware threats were released and more than half a billion personal records are breached. Businesses spend $100 billion a year on cyber technology, but cybersecurity is as much about employee behaviors as it is the tech. The average network breach can cost $4 million in company losses. That's why you need to know about Willis Towers Watson. They understand the only comprehensive approach to cybersecurity is to deal with all of it, your people, your capital, and your technology risks. Willis Towers Watson decodes all that complexity. It is complex. Through a comprehensive three-stage approach, they assess the cyber risks throughout your business, they protect your company with best-in-class solutions, and they improve your ability to recover from future attacks. You can learn more about what Willis Towers Watson can do for you at willistowerswatson.com slash recode. That's willistowerswatson.com slash recode. Today's show is also brought to you by HostGator. Are you ready to take your website to the next level? Whether you're a first-time blogger or an experienced web pro, HostGator has all the tools you need to create a great-looking website or even an online store. If you need a boost in hosting power, they can do that too. HostGator offers cloud, VPS, and dedicated server hosting that can easily handle maximum visitor traffic. See what HostGator can do for your website. Recode listeners get 60% off. That's 6-0. It's a lot. Go to HostGator.com slash Recode. That's HostGator, like an alligator, G-A-T-O-R, dot com slash Recode. We're back here at Recode Media. I'm Peter Kafka. This is Jessica Lesson. We're talking theory and fact and, and argument and idioms about news. Let's have some real talk now. How did you get into the business? So I had, want, had wanted to be a journalist since I can remember in grade school. I uh, thought it was the career where you didn't have to pick a career. You could just keep learning. So, What was I, the model? What was the thing you wanted? Who were you emulating? I'm not sure I thought that far ahead, honestly. I just loved... You saw someone, right? You saw someone do that job or you saw someone on TV or you read someone in the newspaper. So that sounds probably fun. probably like Lois Lane, if yeah. I'm being totally honest. You know, I, I think it was um, as much that as, you know, all the great... Woodward and Bernstein's too, you know, but you but gotta, I just you gotta start somewhere. I I loved all aspects of uh, of reporting and and just you know had awesome teachers who were the editors of the newspapers at school and and all of that and um, at Harvard I was on the Crimson, which was really my first experience of like being in a newspaper and I got to cover the faculty beat, which is sort of like covering Congress because um, it's at that political and. Larry Summers was um, on his way out for some controversial remarks, and the faculty was actually voting him out, and I got to sort of cover that moment. And I have a vague memory of this. There was gender stuff involved, right? Yeah, so, yeah. you know, a, a comment that implied women weren't very good at science, and um, he was out, and the faculty uproared, and it was just an important story, and it, it was one that was interesting beyond Harvard, which was sort of exciting to me, and 
I had uh, secured an internship at the journal that summer and actually started corresponding with the journal on a freelance basis to help them cover that story since there was so much interest. So, so how do you secure an internship at the journal? That's a pretty hard to get, as I recall. And then how do you go about it to stat- tell the journal, I'm going to do some freelancing for you? So in, the, in journal, the journal Boston bureau chief at the time reached out and said, I hear you're going to be an intern for us. Um, and my college newspaper duties had ended. The, the new guard had, had taken over. So um, I was for hire. There's a pipeline. If you're working at the Crimson, it's easier to get to the journal. Sure. Or you've well, I, there. So I was, pretty, um, I was pretty methodical So in terms of my internship. So every summer I had kind of pursued an internship that I thought um, would help me get another internship. So I was at the AP uh, during college, uh, which was awesome, covering the UN, which was a very neat time. Then I went to work for the Boston Globe in Washington, D.C., and actually uh, was interviewed by Marty Baron, now of Washington Post fame, who was um, at the Globe at the time. So that was when I first met Marty, when I was trying to get an internship at the Globe. So these are all, are and, and were then, the best papers in the country. Does it occur to you what, while you're getting internships at the best paper in the country and then the next one and the next one that this is an extraordinary trajectory you're on or it just seems normal and of course No, I felt incredibly lucky, incredibly lucky. And um, I think it was, you know, it was also a time when intern programs were much larger. And um, I think, you know, it was it was obviously challenging, but these were, the Globe in particular had an incredible program a ton of training. You had a writing coach who read all your clips, and oh, I mean, coaches. it was it was an amazing, amazing time. And um, you know, sadly, a lot of these programs have pulled back, and it's one reason why we think we're going to have uh, four summer interns at the Information this summer. Had four last year, um, one of which we've hired, and so it. I've become a sort of intern Do junkie. You pay them? Of course, absolutely, absolutely. So you're on this high power trajectory. From day one, basically, in college. And then you go straight from college to the journal? Yep. And then I, I recall reading your stuff for the journal right away. And when I, we got a drink because you were yeah. kicking so much ass. And you were, again, right out of college. And again, did it strike you that, boy, I'm really moving fast? Or you just thought this is the natural order of things? I, I think I just felt excited and lucky. Um, you know, it was not... I will never forget the um, actually getting hired at the journal because it's one thing to get an intern program, but then there are very few slots. And newsrooms aren't the best run, let's just say, in terms of hiring and keeping in touch with people about their prospects. And so I, I actually just didn't leave the building after my internship. I, I, found, I kept pitching editors on different stories they'd want that made sure my key card would continue to work. And then finally, they just saw me and said, okay, something's finally opened up, um, so we'll give it to you. But I, I was just incredibly excited, in part because I did feel like I was writing this interest in technology, too. You know, I you had the media beat when you started off, which yeah, was even was, then morphing into tech or back Yeah, it was, you know, I was, my very first beat was um, sort of consumer tech for personal journal which was, um, you know, the journal had a San Francisco bureau that covered all the big tech companies. But in New York, um, you know, New York wanted their tech reporters too. It was a little bit turfy. Yeah. Um, But there was – Google had just bought YouTube and the journal hadn't really – had kind of missed the story. So there was this sense, okay, what's the next YouTube? Let's hire someone young who maybe won't miss the next YouTube. And – that was just incredibly exciting to me because. And you said, "I've heard of this thing called Facebook." <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, then it was MySpace, mm-hmm. um, and then it was Facebook. And I remember talking to editors or getting edits back on stories about Facebook. How will this business ever make money? Should we really be writing about it? So um, tease out your your connection to Facebook for the listeners who don't know. Sure. Well. Um, my first connection was that I covered it for the Wall Street Journal for a while, and then my husband joined it, at which point I stopped covering it. Um, but prior to that, you knew Mark Zuckerberg in college. Very. I, we were overlapped. I think I met him a few times. We weren't friends in college. Wasn't, well, so your, your husband, Sam, wasn't he uh, Mark's roommate at one point? Nope. No, friends. I, they Pals knew each other. knew each other. Okay. Yep. So you were not hanging out. In, we were not in, hanging out. Wherever one hangs out in Harvard. We were not hanging out. We were working. Okay. Um, so this is not a – you didn't go back years with him? Nope. I remember meeting – I remember seeing you. It was, it was when Mark had the, the sweat incident. Oh, at, the sweat. At, at D, and you were sort of, well, that's, that's just how Mark is. And 
Well, I had covered them. Right, you know? okay. And I think at the Journal, I was one of the first reporters, certainly one of the first business reporters who, like, took them seriously um, as a business and something that we should be writing about. And I think it has been very cool to watch so many businesses grow when you've covered them from from the very early days, you know, as you've had too. And, um, you know, it, they're certainly in a different place than they were. But I think as a business story, they're probably as exciting as ever. What's the thing you think people misunderstand the most about Mark Zuckerberg? Because you know him pretty well at this point. No one's ever asked me that question, Pierre. It's a good I question. win. Uh, you win. I think um, this is one where I think people understand it, but maybe not to the degree they should, is just like how incredibly far into the future. Um, and big picture, he and, and the company are thinking. I mean, you get glimpses of that when they do their, like, 10-year roadmap at F8 and all that. But I think, um, you know, some people start I, – I currently don't have a 100-year vision for the information. Maybe I mean, I it's should, one thing – you're, you're, you're allowed to do that, right, when mm-hmm. you have a business that's throwing off billions yeah. of dollars in profit. and Not an autopilot, but it really is just a colossus, right? It allows you to go, all right, we got, we got next year licked. What's coming out? What do you make of? They just went they got through F eight. There's mm-hmm. a lot of talk about uh, mind reading and, yeah. and alternative reality and stuff that ranges from like crazy shit we won't see for a few years to maybe we'll never see. What do you think the point of them spending that time talking about yeah. so what this the future is, might look like? I mean, this is with my my business journalist has been back on. Um, Facebook now reminds me where Google was for a long time when I was covering it at the Journal. The easy stuff is over. Now what, right? So yes, you have this cash machine that is minting money. Um, and you're throwing it in a lot of different directions. And you've got to do something with your capital. And you've got to do something to keep your employees and team looking far, far into the future. But I would put... And the, occupied, by the and way, occupied, right? And, and yeah. keeping them keeping them engaged Absolutely. And, and Google, again, when I was trying to understand, and that was a playbook they used and Facebook is using it now. And so... I think it's fascinating to watch because it's very unclear which of these things are going to bear fruit, and many of them won't. I mean, if you even look at, and our reporter, the information, Corey, has done some great work on this in Facebook, you know, messenger platform. Two years ago, one year ago, I mean, it was the cat's meow. It was the future. It was everything. And it still exists, but it it's kind of hasn't really gone That anywhere. was my big question mark over the last week of coverage. And again, this is the stuff where they it's designed to sort of occupy everyone's the front of their head, their brain for a second, right? It's literally, we're going to be able to read your brain. We're going to do this amazing <laughs> shit. And there's a lot of deep thinking about it. And very few people are saying, well, what happened to last year's Absolutely. big shiny thing? And why should we trust them to have any better sense of what the future is going to look like than anybody else? They're placing a lot of bets, and it's absolutely obvious that, you know, many of those won't work out. And I think the great companies and the great CEOs kind of manage through that, and, you know, we'll see. But it's absolutely the role of people like us and to continue to sort of understand, okay, well, what's going on internally? Um, what kind of traction are these things seeing? And you do have to wonder over time what – employees and people working there sort of think and choose to work on, and eventually something's going to have to really gain some traction and start taking off. So you're at the Journal how many years? Eight. Eight years. Really successful there. Media beat, technology beat. Were you thinking, look, I, I'm just going to work my way up the, the masthead, and one day I'm going to run the Wall Street Journal? Or did you think, at some point, when I grow up, I'm going to run my own business, or, or how did that come about? I thought I was going to stay at the Journal forever. I really thought that it was a place where I could grow and play a bigger leadership role in how the news industry would write its next chapter. And, you know, very – I didn't sort of contemplate starting the information for, you know, more than a couple months. And and the switch for me was that I felt like the journal and other places were just making a bunch of mistakes and – that there was a big opportunity. But that means something, then you're dissatisfied for a longer period then, right? You don't just decide to get up one day and start a new business. I well, mean, theoretically you Sure, can, but, but I wasn't. So as a reporter, I, I you know, there were a couple of frustrations. Um, one, as a reporter, was who am I writing for? You know, I was writing, was covering Apple at the time. And you can write Apple stories. Um, you know, there's such great interest in Apple stories. and Less so. Now, a little bit, actually. Yeah. That, that is fair. Um, it will swing back. But what was happening is I was getting a lot of encouragement from my editors for live blogging Apple press, you know, 
conferences and, and stories that I just didn't care. It wasn't why I got up in the morning. I got up in the morning to write stories other people weren't writing that would help business leaders make decisions. And, um, you know, that struck me as, on one hand, frustrating. On the other hand, it was like there was this hole in the market for this other kind of journalism, um, which was the writing, you know, that would really focus on the new information for a certain audience. And I felt like I didn't know who our reader was, and, and that did frustrate me. And it just also felt like a big opportunity. And I believed that there were others like me. You know, my colleagues, when I looked around, felt similarly, that they were being asked to spend their time writing the 19th version of a story just because it would generate and you a didn't think, traffic. well, I'm, I'm on a management track. I'm going to be able to influence decisions. I'm going to be able to have a voice in, in saying, let's stop this. No, I no. felt that I saw an opportunity and it was it would be exciting to me to kind of go after it now as opposed to waiting. How much of this is being in Silicon Valley, being in San Francisco in that period where you could literally write a, a napkin pitch and get funded if you were a certain kind of white male? Being around people for many years who'd started their own companies, run their own companies, yep, your husband, husband Sam had done that, just saying, I want to try this too. It doesn't look that hard or let me see how hard it is. So it was because I felt I knew how hard it was and I was still excited by it that I felt like I could give it a go. I mean, I was absolutely influenced by knowing a bunch of entrepreneurs because it is a crazy idea to say, oh, here's an opportunity. I'm just going to go do it. Um, but the great thing about journalism is it doesn't take a lot of capital to get going. Thanks to the internet, you can instantly reach an audience and you can grow faster. So I felt like a lot of, you know, the situations was ripe to try it and that I would learn a lot. And I just knew that if you were writing stories that had original reporting about important technology companies, there was a market for that. And the plan was always that you were going to fund it yourself and fund it through the business? Or do you think at one point I'm going to go out and do the standard angel slash VC seed round? So the plan was always um, for me to just kind of get us going and then to be supported through, our, you know, our business and cash flow and our subscribers. And the reason I wanted that to be how we operated is I felt like it was the true sign we were onto something. If we could sustain our growth, you know, with some help, so we had a cushion of investment, but based on our growth, that meant we were going in the right direction. And if we get to a place when that isn't happening, that should be a warning sign that we need to adapt. So how much money do you need to start the business from scratch? Not much. Not I mean, much. I'm not going to get into the numbers, but, Six you know. Six figures, seven figures. I mean, definitely not. Well, I won't, I'm not going to get into the numbers. You but, don't need seven figures. And, but you were, you were in a position where you could pay yourself a salary. You had, well, you, Mira Frati was, your, I think, your main hire, right? A yeah. Couple, a I mean, I, I, um, I don't pay myself. Um, which is also, you know, a situation I'm fortunate to be able to be in. But uh, we started with, I mean, I remember we hired our first reporter and hired our second, but we always scaled as our business was scaling. And um, so you have this many more subs, we can hire another reporter. Sure, and I mean, I think we're um, we were fortunate enough that the business grew fast enough that we didn't make those calculations. You know, we have always been in the mode of just hiring as many reporters as we think would be a good fit and work out well with what we're trying to do. Uh, and we're in that mode now. And do you give people equity or, or, or not? So there's a debate now, but I think at least, at least in journalism startups mm -hmm. about whether or not you should be giving away equity or, or incenting people with equity. Sure. So because I own the company, it's a little bit different for us because we have no, our equity would be worthless um, because I want to own this business forever. So um, we just compensate people competitively and if they stay with us, there we do upside through other kinds of bonuses and that kind of thing. Do you does that culture exist for journalists? Where they say, "Well, I'm worth this percent of the company," or is that specific to sort of engineers and other folks in the business world? I think the culture of saying I'm helping build something and I want to accrue some of the value definitely exists, and we incur. I mean, we love that, and we want people who think that way. Um, but you know, the problem with the culture of equity is it, it's often worthless. More often than not, it is, and that's what gets missed. And so. Um, I think, uh, sadly, a lot of employees in Silicon Valley are, are um, getting duped by just thinking that equity is fancy and, and good comp. Yeah, people are more sophisticated about it now than they were a decade ago? Or you really, you I know? hope so. I mean, we've but done still. some coverage um, on how unsophisticated people are, and we've interviewed people and asked them about their offer letters and the like. So, um, you know, it, 
something I wish people paid more attention to. That would always to. irk me when someone would say, well, you're, you're, this is, you own this company, so you should. I'm like, well, yes, I do, but I'm not getting paid based on, I can't get paid based on my, my equity, which has not been liquid. I can't really complain. We're going to take another quick break for a word from our sponsor. Here's my friend Lauren Good with a word from Viacom. Hi, this is Lauren Good of The Verge. We're all fans of something. Me, I'm a fan of yoga, and I'm just starting to get into meditation apps like Headspace, which I know are all the rage right now. I'm not quite sure I'm good at either of those things, but hey, I enjoy them and I enjoy reading about them. And the way that we consume culture is changing. So the way fandom works is changing for people too. I want to tell you about an awesome new podcast called Fan Club, which is about that change and why we love what we love. Fan Club is a short series hosted by Ross Martin, who has perhaps thought more about fandom than anyone else on earth. On Fan Club, Ross is trying to figure out the future of how we're going to watch, listen, and consume culture. He talks to amazing, brilliant people across the pop culture landscape, musicians, artists, fashion designers, chefs, even scientists, about how their work is being experienced today and how they think it will be experienced in the years to come. Fan Club will change the way you think about the things that you love. You can subscribe now at vbyviacom.com slash fan club or wherever you're listening to this show. We're back here at Recode Media. What's your partnership with Jim Van High and Axios? So Jim um, is one of that informal group of advisors that we have. So um, he's been incredibly helpful on actually giving me some wonderful advice on growing a team and retaining talent. And when he started Axios, he asked if I would sort of reciprocate and informally um, advise them. Because he's a big paid subscription guy. They he is a, a big paid subscription guy, a, a the Politico business. Pro model. Right. And I think he's got similar ideas they want to eventually implement at Axios. It's weird. We had him on stage and we got him to talk about that eventually and eventually got him to talk about the price. And, and they don't ever want to talk about that again. They're, they're in, for now, they are behaving as if they are a free publication, but they, that's not the plan. That's what they say. I, I don't know more yeah. here, um, but I, you're, I would agree with you completely. So they're a hybrid model, mm-hmm. um, or will be one day a hybrid model. Do you ever think, all right, there's a way I could incorporate advertising that would make this business more successful? Maybe. I mean, I, I'm not anti-advertising, and I think that successful media companies, if you look ahead, have multiple revenue streams, and we want to be on the scale of an FT or Wall Street Journal someday. So I think we'll definitely have multiple revenue streams and um, advertising could be one of them. It's not something we think about at all today because I think it's important. Like if you could have a large base of people willing to pay you, that to me is the biggest position of strength you can kind of start from and grow from. We were talking about events briefly. Mm -hmm. You're not in the events business, but you're holding events. When people hear this, you will have held a New York event. Yeah. Which is not open to the public. It's subscriber only. So it's you you don't and you don't sell this, right? It's it's a correct. We have a small fee to make sure you actually show up if you reserve. But um, it's part of being a subscriber, part of the community, and uh, yeah, we will have talked in hindsight. Um, We have Jeff Zucker, Marty Baron, Nate Silver, Katie Kirk. Good one. We're we're digging into the topic of news, um, and we'll also unveiled a new product that we're actually very excited about. It's probably our biggest launch since we started, which is called Briefing. And it's our reporters' commentary on the tech news of the day. Do I call it a newsletter? Uh, the site is more the focus, so briefing.theinformation.com. You can get it as an email if you want, but I think we're our goal is to have something that people, subscribers can check continuously throughout the day to kind of see what our reporters think of the news of the day. Because you guys deliberately do low-volume publishing, right? A story a day, a couple stories a day, max. Yep. Um, And that's because what we publish is original to us. So uh, it's more important to us to be the first to say something or having gone more in-depth about something. But the idea that there's still some value me and we'll say, hey, that Mike Isaac story about Uber, there was some really interesting stuff in there. And by the way, think about this, or I think Mike got this wrong. Absolutely. Or, and here's... You know, if you've been following this, here's what struck us as the most interesting. Um, exactly. That's a perfect example. And, and one um, that we've – in that story came out during our beta test, and that was one Amir did during the test that worked really well, I thought. It's funny the spotlight you get if you're writing about – I think this is exists outside of technology reporting as well, but certainly in technology reporting where – there's a informed and engaged audience who have their own platforms, 
who will tell you what they think of your story and not just leave a note in the comments, but mm-hmm. write their own blog post about it. And right now, I mean, this will be at least a week old, but there's this back and forth with Mike and Ben Thompson mm-hmm. and other folks talking about the lead of the story and whether or not Uber was really tracking users or just tracking the iPhone. And it's the kind of scrutiny I think you really don't get in other well, I'm, t- I'm going back and forth. I guess this probably does exist now in politics and sports, yeah. anywhere where there's an an audience where, where the people you're writing about have a degree of power and autonomy and, mm-hmm. and can say what they want. It, I think it's also fueled by the fact there's a whole cohort, cohort of writers who exist only to engage with other people. It's actually easier to react than to go out and do the work yourself. And so... Um, if you're in the business of just reacting to other people's news and that's your whole business, um, that's why there is that, right? But there's it. also just a, there's a lot of folks, again, who are technically savvy, who are sure. doing the work, who figured out years ago, oh, I can, my opinion is as valuable as anybody else's and I can express it on a blog or a medium post or a, a tweet. Yeah, no, there's a whole, there's a whole chattering class, right? But yeah. that's always existed and that exists everywhere. Yeah. One uh, question that interests me a lot is, Who's that in service to? And how does it not get so navel-gazing, right? And this is something we're trying to do with briefing because – and another reason why having a subscription business is valuable. When you have a subscription business, you know your audience. Um, you know a lot about them. You can study their behavior and readership more closely. And it's easier to say – to sort of hone in, okay, what aspect of this story – is going to be really interesting to that audience. And that's a tricky thing to do. It's particularly tricky in in tech journalism where the potential interest is vast. But I think as, you know, sometimes when you're in the bubble of Silicon Valley, it's easy to get lost in, you know, the fine points of Right. Something. But there's, you know, the current version of this is called the take, right? But the mm-hmm. two guys, two people of either gender or whatever gender you want, um, in a bar talking about the events of the day or the game or whatever, that's an old model for one, engaging with people and, and two, creating media. And that, there's an yeah. old model for that. There's nothing wrong with that. No, and I think it can be valuable. You just have to – I think when you're building a business around it, the question is who's the audience and how differentiated is that person? Right. I mean I think this is like a big problem for ESPN right now is and this is all they can do now. They used to have a lock on sports information and that lock is – it's been unlocked. Everyone can see the score and everyone can see highlights. So now they're doing talk radio mm-hmm. on and on and on. But anyone can do talk radio. Yeah, and, and I think you do have to worry. Like you get – I sort of have this image. It's not a great metaphor, but like of the financial crisis and like mortgages, right, where you've like repackaged and regurgitated the product so often you lose source of like what was the original value to it. And um, – I just think it's so much more important to be in the business of creating the new stuff that then people talk about. I mean, it's much it's much harder, but it's what skilled journalists do. Does this remain a technology-centered business for a long time, or do you branch out and do verticals and you're going to do bio? And I think tech is the vertical. So the parallel I think about is over the last several decades, the journal and the FT – grew to prominence because they saw the world through a lens of finance, right? They hired reporters to cover all sorts of subjects who understood finance. I had to take a course on, you know, cash flow, like reading cash flow statements um, as part of my training at the Wall Street Journal. And we want to do that for tech, right? I think that um, instead of treating tech as this vertical, it's really the way to understand what's going to be new and changing across industries and, um, that's really exciting to me. Do you need, we were talking about this at the beginning, do you need the Apples and Ubers and Amazons and sort of these glitzy big companies, people know who the company is, they know what the product is, it's a product they can touch or can buy, yeah. they know who the CEO is. Are those important to keeping this going for you or can this, if, if tech becomes sort of diffuse and in everything and everything is technology, does that make what you're covering less interesting? Well, the big companies aren't going away. I mean, there's just no question. They're, they're just getting bigger, um, and they're going to touch more of our lives. So covering and sort of owning as much as we can different parts of that, I think, ha- is critical, but we're not going to lose those companies. I think then being ahead of the curve on all the other stuff is is incredibly important as well, and that's a big playing field. I mean, one of the things we've focused on over the past couple of years are those later stage almost public companies uh, like Dropbox, like a Airbnb, like Uber, and covering them not just when they raise a round of financing, but really covering their business, covering the executives no one else can name. 
um, some of our most popular features of the information are our org charts, where we'll actually report out who reports to whom. Yeah, uh, 40 or 50 people at Snap, for instance. And and that because it's important because then as these companies get bigger, the interest gets bigger. So um, It's also just a great tool, right, if you're a – for lots of different people who need to know what that R chart looks like. Yeah. I remember Roger McNamee wanted us to create a free one at Forbes.com when he when he bought that for a couple of years. It went nowhere because it turns out the people who know what the R chart of Microsoft looks like don't want to share it. I was going to say, it's incredibly challenging reporting, but it's something our team thinks is worthwhile because the, the value is incredible as well. It turns out you cannot crowdsource that kind of information. You cannot crowdsource. Well, you can. Or you can crowdsource like good. maybe 60% of it or something, you know, and then... Um, but to really to get to the level, which isn't even that in the weeds. I mean, our subscribers are interacting with these companies. They need to not just know Evan Spiegel, but know the people who report to him and the people who report to them. What's the toughest story uh, for you? What's the story you guys haven't cracked that you're spending a lot of time on? What's opaque to you that shouldn't be? Look, right now I'm thinking a lot about issues around gender and sexual harassment in Silicon Valley, as are many publications many of which are doing great work. Um, and it is a very challenging topic. And I think it's challenging not just because getting people to talk is challenging, but, um, you know, figuring out the right questions to sort of ask and where the line is between, you know, there's still too much of this, well, everyone does it, so how bad is it? And, of, like, that just doesn't fly, obviously, but you – encounter that so much in your reporting, just figuring out um, how to go after that story. Another challenge of it is stories where there's been a behavior that's around for a long time just doesn't seem new and newsworthy to people um, because it's just, you know, it's we happened had, with the, the Uber, uh, the Travis story exactly. where he's taking out the employees to the, the strip club in South Korea. And they were in part of a news cycle where every story then got a ton of scrutiny. But there was there was pushback even from my boss. Yeah. Chris Wisher said, eh, "Absolutely, strip club. it happens." And that was just it was disturbing to me that you know we could publish a story about how um, Uber executives went to it wasn't just a strip club it was an escort bar in um, South Korea and we thought this was significant because it was a company event and there had been an HR complaint about it and then another executive had subsequently reached out to one of the attendees and the attendee felt asked her to lie about that situation when it came up in the ongoing sexual harassment investigation about Uber. So from our perspective, that was it. And and there were some, including Kara, who said, you know, this happens all the time. And look, my reaction to that is all the more reason to write about it. <laughs> why, do you, why do you think the Susan Fowler story tipped things, at least in my mind, it yeah, tipped it things. Why do you think, and this is if you're not following this very closely, this is a former Uber engineer who had terrible uh, things to say about the way she was treated at Uber. Astonishing. But I remember seeing that thing break on a Sunday on Twitter and going, hmm, this is another yeah. example of Uber behaving badly. And it didn't resonate with me. And it wasn't until a day of coverage that I thought, oh, this is a thing. Yeah. I wondered that too. And it did shoot up um, in attention very, very quickly. I think Uber is a company in a moment where where it has a lot of enemies. And um, it's also a company that increasingly everyone's using. And so even people who aren't in the bubble have heard about it and therefore have some level of interest in it. And, um, you know, I, I think the company reacted as they – I mean, we'll see how this investigation goes on. I mean, they were quick on that. That was another thing that surprised me. Um, you saw their their reaction right away, but I think it was just a moment when this is a company that previously had leaned in uh, to criticism and leaned in in the un Sheryl Sandberg way. Mm -hmm. So basically, fuck you. Yeah, we're doing this with a reason, and we celebrate various kinds of, tr of transgressive behavior is is baked into our company. And right, that was proud of being aggressive, and is realized that doesn't fly, and. You know, the the Susan Fowler thing did shoot up, and then it was just thing after thing. You know, the video of Travis in the back of a car who yelling at an Uber driver ultimately. Um, you know, more complaints. The New York Times has great investigations of their behaviors around driving tactics. And do, you, do you think they are genuinely vulnerable, or do you think this is a company with, with such speed and such reach, and again, everyone uses it, that he, in, short of like, Donald Trump style shooting someone on Fifth Avenue. He's basically impervious at this point. 
I guess it depends what impervious to what. Do I think Uber will be a very valuable company someday or, you know, public company? Yes, I do. I mean, I think that its business will continue to grow. Um, and I think that's because it has a good product. It's a very competitive product. And I think, uh, I think it ends up looking a lot more like Amazon with really low margins and a lot of scale than um, maybe other businesses. But um, and and I think I think Travis will survive. I mean, I, I think that he will um, power through. There's a lot of interest, obviously, in who his COO is going to be, and I think that's a very tough role to fill. Um, but I think you know, barring something else coming out about him in particular, I think he'll stay on top of that company. But it, it's it's going to be a slog and. Um, rebuilding his management team right now is what he's what he's got to do. Yeah, I mean, it seemed a little bit resonant of that the Amazon New York Times story, and that's and Amazon is a company that generally has a much bigger halo. But when that story broke, there was a, it was again it was a summer story, mm-hmm. August I think, and there was a well, how will this affect Amazon's business? And I knew it immediately it won't affect it at all because people like getting stuff from Amazon, and if people who work at Amazon are treated poorly, you can debate whether they are or not, as long as you don't have to see it. Mm-hmm. And by the way, it's not a SeaWorld situation. It's not you know yeah. images of dogs and whales being kicked and beaten. It's fine. And I think Uber kind of exists that way. It's more intimate because there's still a driver you're talking to mm-hmm. or not talking to. But this has been Uber Talk with Peter and <laughs> Yeah, always. But no, we'll see. And I, I, I agree with all that. And um, it's also been this fascinating case study in public relations and, and just sort of how these um, private tech companies that kind of grow up too fast deal with the fallout. Let's give you one more plug. If someone wants to sample what you're doing, they don't have $400 they want to spend immediately or they want to debate how they want to spend their $400. Sure. How do they get to your stuff? Because you have a pretty tight paywall. So we do have a monthly option. Um, so if people do want to get the whole experience um, for 39 bucks, they can always do that. Um, and lots of folks do. I mean, so- by the way, not to be flipped, but a lot of your stuff just gets reblogged by various folks anyway. Right, so, so I can get it for free without ever paying you. Well, you can get you can get what the blogger thinks is interesting uh-huh. and a fact or two. I don't think you actually get the meat of the story, but sure, when we break a big story, um, others will will absolutely follow it. And then subscribers can share stories with anyone through um, share links they have too. So if you know someone who's a subscriber. Uh, they can send you some stuff, and that's a great way to see if it's for you as well. Excellent. Thanks for letting me ramble at you for 52 minutes. That was longer than I thought we'd go. You're busy. you got a, you got a kid to raise, conference to run. I'm going to let you go. Thanks for coming. Thanks to you guys for listening. If you want to hear more of these free podcasts, people like Jason Calcanis, Mike Allen, Neil Gaiman, we just did that one. That was fun. We're happy to give it to you for free. Our only ask is you go to Apple Podcast or Google Play, and you give us a rating and a review. And if you're feeling really generous, you can subscribe free for you. I'm not going to tell you where you can find other fine podcasts because you're smart and you know where you can listen to them. Thanks to our sponsors. We love our sponsors. Mac Weldon, Willis Towers Watson, HostGator, and Viacom. Thanks to Digital Media who sells all those ads. Thanks to Beth O'Connell and Eric Johnson for producing and Chris Basil for putting this all together. Thanks to you guys again. We'll see you next week.